The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. and welcome to What Goes Up, a Bloomberg Weekly Markets podcast. I'm Sarah Ponsek, a reporter on the Cross Asset team. And I'm Mike Regan, a senior editor on the markets team. This week on the show, the risk rebound continues. As some countries and states in the United States begin their economic reopenings, the next two weeks become crucial as more data rolls in on the virus and on consumer habits. You could say our guest this week is a little bit skeptical. Not only does he not believe in the risk rally, but he says the stock market is forever changed with buybacks no longer the force they once were. Well, Sarah, one force that will continue to remain is our tradition, the craziest thing I saw in markets this week. We will, of course, finish out the show with that segment. And as always, if you see something crazy in markets, uh, give us a call on the podcast hotline at 646-324-3490 and leave us a voicemail. Maybe we'll play it on the show. And you can also tweet to us at podcasts with the craziest things you saw in the markets this week. I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there, Mike. My, my crazy thing this week, it comes with a potential request from callers. Uh, so we're going to try to get you to keep them rolling in. A special request from callers. A special oh boy. Re- because I need help with it. So, all right. Somehow I feel like I'm going to be the butt of this joke, but I, I will. <laughs> you're I will not. You're you. not. <laughs> I will humor you. Uh, and, uh, Sarah, as you said, our guest this week uh, is a little bit skeptical about this rebound in stocks. And to be quite honest, so, uh, so am I. So that's why I'm glad to have him on the show. I'm not above a little bit of confirmation bias. You know, I'm not too proud for that. Uh, we all know he, that by this point. <laughs> <laughs> but he's uh, uh, reading his notes this week. Really insightful, smart stuff. But not only that, hilarious, often hilarious at times. So uh, very happy to have him on the show. His name is Vincent Deluard. He's the director of global macro strategy at the brokerage INTL FC Stone. Vincent, welcome to the show. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure, and I'm a, a big fan of yours. So, oh, that's one of you guys out there, anyway. <laughs> that's your confirmation bias, right off the top of the show, Mike. That's right. That's right. That's right. We got one. <laughs> so, uh, you know, Vincent, as as Sarah um, alluded to in the introduction, you are a little skeptical about this rally. Walk us through sort of um, the main reasons why. I mean, obviously, the, the bear case for equities right now is pretty obvious, right? But you know, there's the school of thought that, you know, you have to sort of uh, believe in the price action and the the power of the price action itself. And I think it's 
it's turning a lot of people into believers in this rally. The fact that um, it has moved so much off the bottom in a, a fairly consistent straight line. I mean, there's been some big down days uh, in this rebound, but it, you know, the volatility has calmed down to some degree. Um, walk us through what you're expecting in, in the near term. Well, uh, it's usually the best way to look like a fool, but I'm I'm going to do it anyway. Um, <laughs> That's what we specialize on. <laughs> good, good, good. Uh, in general, you you know, it's very rare to see such a clear V-shaped rebound. I guess you can point back to December 2018, but that's the, and maybe that's why it was there was such an, an angst amongst, uh, especially retail investors, to 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 get back in, right? Because people. Oh, this is the first pullback we had, and the last one was so short. You know, it was on Christmas Day; you couldn't do anything. So, I actually, I think it was Sarah who wrote a piece on um, this kind of increase in, in retail trading. And with hindsight, right, it was pretty obvious, right? You you, you lock everybody down, uh, you send them checks. I mean, most people are actually making more money today, even the ones who lost their jobs, because you know the unemployment benefits have been increased to close to a thousand dollar a week. Uh, plus the $1,000 a month stimulus check, nothing to do, casinos are closed, uh, stock market is biggest pullback ever, you had all the um, the retail broker rolling out commission three trading, so it's kind of a perfect storm. And that, again, it would be preposterous for me to, you know, get the, the, the walls say, oh, don't, don't trade stock, the time to sell is when the shoe shiner gives you a stock tip. Well, you know, obviously, the right now these retail people are up double digit, and and I look like an idiot sitting on cash. <laughs> but I think a lot of, of professional investors are are equally confused by this and are still expecting another wave of of declines, um, retesting the low, if not taking them below, would be my expectation. Vincent, I love this line that you have in one of your recent reports. You say April's face ripping rally has created a tremendous amount of introspection, self-doubt and second guessing among bears. What did I miss that every other investor has seen? How can market action be so disconnected from reality? Does the rest of the world experience a radically different reality from mine? Is the world crazy or is it me? And I, I think to a sense, there are a lot of people, many, many people thinking along those lines. And you talked about the retail trading aspect. And I think it's so interesting because there is this subscription, this idea that usually at the lows at a steep sell-off, you see retail flee the market because they're so scared at that point in time. But if you look at the data, I mean, it looks like retail timed this just right. There was a boom in accounts opening in March, uh, people getting in trading, this idea that, yeah, maybe they're equating it to gambling, they have nothing else to do. But it kind of makes me think then, if we do start to see economies start to reopen and we start to see your average, your average Joe going back to work, if that is the person who is trading or at least a decent amount of the demand in this market, when that happens, there's the, is there the possibility that we see a fall off in demand because they don't have that time to sit at home anymore? Right. I mean, that would be kind of the, you know, um, seller opening view, right? Where, you know, you rally during the lockdowns and then the actual big downdraft will happen when the economy opens. I tend to be on that view partly because I think the I don't want to get into the medical aspect, but it seems to me that whatever will happen next is going to be very different from, from what before. And we're still living under this illusion that, okay, well, you know, if we all wear a mask and stay home and do it for long enough, everything will be back to normal and people have not readjusted to that. But um, going back to your point on supply and demand, which um, I thought was interesting and, and buybacks especially, I mean, that was one of the reasons why I was bearish before COVID-19. 
um, was that we are seeing buybacks slowing down dramatically. Even in January, before COVID hit the US, buyback announcements were down by 60 to 70%. Now, obviously, I mean, COVID is going to throw a wrench on this. Um, you know, buybacks have been the single larger source of equity demand for the stock market for five years now. Uh, you know, we're looking at close to 900 billion a year last year. Uh, and if I look at all the other segments, possible buyers of stock, you know, um, whether it's pension funds, structural selling for demographic reasons, banks, it's regulatory broker dealers, you want to, you know, reduce your inventories. Even foreigners used to be bought, net buyers, but since we had the, uh, the kind of collapse in all prices, obviously sovereign wealth funds are a lot more likely to be sellers of US assets than they are to be buyers. So that really leaves you a huge gap. And I, I, I think you're absolutely right that retail investors feel that gap uh, in April. Uh, but as you point out, these flows are traditionally fickle, uh, especially if it is, you know, if you think of someone who's opened an account just a month ago, I mean, what happens if the stock market drops by 10% or what happens if that person goes back to work, as you point out? So I, I don't think retail investors is a, a sustainable replacement for the buyback bid. I picture all these new retail traders as the people who were on uh, DraftKings and FanDuel uh, a couple months ago. And now that sports has shut down, they have nothing else to do. <laughs> and yes. once there's something to gamble on, uh, they'll be they'll be right back on uh, FanDuel. Maybe uh, perhaps an oversimplification there. But, um, <laughs> you know, Vincent, the other uh, the flip side of that coin is, OK, it, it looks like retail got bullish about buying this dip. When you look at sort of the professional end of things, um, th there is a lot of bearishness in the positioning. You know, if you look at the CFTC uh, positioning data, a huge short uh, still exists on S&P 500 futures. Um, is it kind of sort of both forces acting at once, possibly like the, the market moving against this massive hedge fund short on the index futures and a little bit of retail oomph uh, behind it as well? Is that possible? Yeah, I would think so. I mean, that's, that's also what we're seeing with our clients. Um, uh, I mean, you could see you had some market dislocation in March, um, you know, when we had these big down days when both the treasury market and the stock market were selling off. You had big discount on, on, on several uh, ETFs. So it, it, there was some and spike of, on volume. There was some aspect that made it look like a bottom. And I think we saw a little bit of that institutional big comeback then. But I would say, like, since mid-April, really, I think is when um, when most people thought, oh, this gone, kind of like, you know, you go to the first retracement. I mean, I, I'm not a technical analyst, but the, the notion that, you know, you retrace about 60% of your losses and then, you know, you, there's another down leg, that hasn't happened. Uh, another thing that worries me since mid-April is kind of the divergence between uh, high-yield spreads and, and stocks. Um, so... Pretty much since the beginning of the crisis, you had at least basically the, the stock market was taking excuse from the, the, the junk market, uh, which way, whichever way spreads, sorry, it spreads widened, stocks dropped, it spreads shrank, stocks rose. And then that relation broke down since mid-April, where we have seen spreads uh, at least stay the same, if not widen a little bit, and the stock market just keep going up. So, of course, a big component of the rally is also stimulus both from the government and then also from the Fed. And bear with me because I've heard this floated recently. Uh, maybe a majority of people will think it, it's a bit crazy, but in a way we have seen investors trying to front run the Fed's purchases of credit by buying credit ETFs. You've seen massive flows into some of those funds. What about the idea 
and call me crazy, but what about the idea that maybe you have some investors out there thinking that we will get to the point where the Fed's going to have to come out and say that they're buying equities in some form of another, and they're trying to front run that as well? Uh, no, no, no. I, I, I don't think that's crazy at all. I'm, I'm in that camp. I, I think this is how this ends. Uh, this, and again, because of that supply and demand factor, like you have, I mean, I, I well, there'll be some buybacks less, right? Maybe like Microsoft or other companies will buybacks, but by and large, buybacks as the main marginal buyer of stock is, is, is a story of the 2010s. Um, and that will leave a permanent 500 billion plus gap in the equity supply and demand picture. And I, and I think that's, by the way, something that you see across every developed market and it's demography. At the end of the day, as societies age, uh, people need to sell stock to buy bonds and eventually they need to sell bonds to, buy, to go into cash. That's, what, that's why the stock markets have gone nowhere in Japan, in Europe. The U.S. really has been the exception. And I think it has been the exception because the U.S. has such an unusual amount of buyback activity. Um, so as you remove that, you will need to fill it. Like I said, I don't think the retail bid, this is a cute story. It's wonderful. I, I'm glad people are making money, but I don't think it's a, it's a sustainable source of demand. I only see one possible actor, and that's the Fed. But, and I mean, you know, you've seen the Bank of Japan do it before. Uh, it's certainly been floated before. I think uh, it was Bernanke and Yellen actually suggested buying buying ETFs at some point. So, I'm sure it's there, but it's there. I think at a lower price point. I mean, you, it oh, nothing surprises me anymore. But it would surprise me if at 10 percent below the all-time high, the Fed say, okay, you know what we got to do? Buy stocks. Yeah, that point about the retail uh, commission-free trading—you know, it's it's commission-free to buy, it's commission-free to sell as well. So I do wonder if that is ultimately a a source of of uh, more volatility. Um, so Sarah, I I didn't think that was a crazy question. It was borderline. It was borderline. All right, I'll take borderline. Borderline, yeah. Borderline you, is is a success. It's a victory in my book. <laughs> but Vincent seems to uh, specialize in crazy things, which is uh, a good guest for us. So I'm going to read one, one of the titles of a recent re uh, report from you, uh, Vincent. A crazy but logical call for stagflation. Um, this one's really interesting to me. And you talk about sort of this, you know, we've, we've hear a lot about the wealth divide in the U.S. You also talk about the generational divide, how the younger generation... Um, uh, us younger generation, right, Sarah? That's, that's you, Mike. All, all us young people, wink, wink, um, are obviously being forced to shoulder the burden of the sacrifice in this uh, situation. You know, um, younger people obviously are much lower risk uh, to death from the virus. They're at a sort of more, I don't know, uh, precarious point in their careers where maybe perhaps more vulnerable to layoff or in a, the type of service job that is more vulnerable to layoff in this environment. So Vincent, just just walk us through this crazy but logical call for stagflation. How do you see the potential for stagflation as we get through sort of the reopening and what comes next? Right. Well, let me first start with the uh, generational aspect because it, I think it is the ultimate driver for the call for, for stagflation. Um, so yeah, as you pointed out, you know, before going into COVID, we had this old debate about inequality. I mean, it was almost hilarious. You'd see all these billionaires at Davos, you know, like <laughs> talking about inequalities. Uh, and, you know, all this field of studies like, oh, the gender pay gap and the race pay. And these are all true. I'm not, I'm not, not making the case. But by and large, the single best predictor of how wealthy you are is how old you are. And then you could be, you could say, well, that's normal, right? It takes time to build wealth. But no, across time, we've seen the relative 
um, position of the 60 plus cohort versus the under 30 cohort has is, is been um, going in, in opposite directions. Uh, partly because of programs such as, such as Medicare, such as Social Security, that are effective transfers from one generation to the other. And also, I think the fundamental reason for it is the rise in asset prices relative to wages. Because at the end of the day, when you're young, you don't have assets. Your, your asset is your human capital. Uh, if wages don't go up, well, that asset doesn't go up. Conversely, when asset prices go up and you're an old person, usually you own assets. So you can buy more work, more labor with uh, your capital. I mean, one stat that I love is that in, in 1982, the, you had to work for four days at the federal minimum wage to buy one share in the S&P 500. Today, it's around two months. That is yeah, for that, me, yeah. The that, that's an amazing striking. stat. Right. So we had that building in, right? And you could see it in the OK Boomer memes, right? I mean, there was this, this feeling and it was poorly expressed because our generation is not very self-aware and you know, but uh, that, okay, something went wrong, right? All these boomers with the social security telling us to work harder, like they didn't pay for college, stop lecturing. Like, th that anger among the millennial Gen Z uh, w was building up. And then on top of that, we, we you add in the COVID crisis. And the COVID crisis is, it's, I mean, it's been designed by a, a demographer or an economist. I mean, basically the, the, the disease thematically kills the old, spares the young, and then the cure um, hurts the young to save the old. So we've asked for another one of these transfers. Like, please, young generation, screw up the economy. Don't go to work. Try to juggle raising kids that are not at school with Zoom meetings. Uh, think about the people who are driving the, the, the Amazon trucks, the nurses, so that the old people can be safe. And maybe it was the ethical thing to do. I, I certainly believe, I mean, if I think of my parents, obviously, uh, I would have done that. But it's a transfer. It's a transfer on top of a situation that was very unequal. And I think as we as we reopen, we'll have to address that concern. And many of the things that the, the young agenda, if you will, uh, the ideas like Medicare for all, ideas like universal basic income, student loan, for, student loan forgiveness, all these things will have to be on the table. And that will be the drive for kind of inflationary politics for the next decade. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know, uh, we've talked on the show about how this event could be sort of a tipping point for so many different aspects of, of the world and the economy. And I wonder if this is one of them, if the sort of policy on the other end of this 
uh, starts paying attention to those younger voters a little bit more. Maybe we get some sort of student loan forgiveness, something, some kind of bailout for uh, the millennials. My generation, Generation X, we're we're screwed no matter what. I mean, yes, we're we're yes. yeah, we're just you know. You're in the no middle. One... <laughs> I love right, how Vincent right. Vincent just going along with you. He's just yes, you're right. Yes, you're screwed. Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> But I consider myself an honorary millennial, so maybe maybe somehow I'll, I'll I'll get in on the gravy train. But does do you think that's right? I mean, could this sort of shift the whole dialogue uh, a little bit left on the political spectrum to a sort of kinder and gentler policies towards uh, especially the younger generation that, as you point out, um, has struggled to gather uh, wealth uh, and and influence in this economy. Um, you know, people that graduated in the the global financial crisis, maybe just at the point where you know they have the down payment for a house, and now all of a sudden they're hit with this. Um, you know, is that is, is that a tipping point? Do you think? Yeah, I, I think so. And and by the way, it's hard to see it now because it, clearly the the boomer class is still very much in control. I mean. Just look at, you know, uh, Joe Biden versus Trump or Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer. But anytime I see these people on uh, on TV, I keep thinking about the amount of, of physical decay. <laughs> they are the very embodiment of that. And, and you know, the, 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 the quote about Hemingway, how do you go bankrupt, you know, first slowly and then all at once. As far as the boomer generation, you can certainly see it with, with someone like, like Pelosi or, or, or Joe Biden, like the, the decay is not happening all at once. And if you look at Congress, I mean, how many of, the, of these people are going to be alive in five years? <laughs> I mean, the death rate really, you know, for, for a long time, it's nothing. And then you get to age 75 and boom. And, you know, by age 90, everybody's dead. So we are getting to that boomer generation is getting into into that that high death zone, which would be consistent with, with this tipping point idea. Uh, as far as like inflation, I think at the end of the day, it is the most convenient way to address this problem. Uh, what do we need in order to fix this? Well, we need lower asset prices so that young people can buy a house and start making babies. Uh, and then we need higher wages. Uh, and then we need uh, inflation so that the debt gets, I mean, because yeah, there are all sorts of equity issues. Like if we cancel also on low debt, well, what about the people who paid back on this food? It, to me, it's a lot easier to have like 10 years of inflation at 7%. By the end, everybody's paid off, but we haven't done any other hard things. And that's that's the most politically uh, satisfying way to, to solve the crisis. So say we were to get to that point and we do see a, a big pickup in, in inflation to deal with what we're seeing now. What does that mean for portfolios then? I mean, how do you even think about going about investing at that point in time? Get the heck out of bonds, I guess, for one thing. Yeah. <laughs> Not now, but yeah, yeah, I, I think so. Um, I think, well, first of all, it's helpful because the, the hardest position of being a bear for the past two years, which is my case, has been, well, what do you do with your money then? <laughs> like, oh, you think stocks are expensive? You're going to buy bonds? <laughs> okay, well, nothing's cheap, right? Well, no, actually, there's one thing that's cheap, and that's inflation-sensitive assets or inflation in general. I mean, you can buy, you can actually get paid to get into an inflation swap. Meaning like, you know, every, like if you look at Europe or Japan, the, the market's pricing deflation, even the US break-evens were negative, I think all the way to five years, now it's gone back to two. So it is truly, I think the only asset that is fundamentally cheap. Um, so that's, that's what I would be looking at. Now, it's probably not an immediate thing because right now, you know, you can't have inflation if people cannot buy anything. Like the, the CPI at this point is a, the consumer basket is, 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 a, is a unicorn. It's a fictional creature. I mean, you, you can't buy it, right? So I think it will hit 
more towards maybe the end of the year than today, but you will have like a secular opportunity. I mean, if you think of things like, like Brazilian stocks, like materials, like energy, like these are the sectors where you could see like 100% gain month after month after month. All right, so, so maybe not today, but at the end of the year, once we see how this crisis does evolve. Uh, but Mike, I've got to say, I think we've said the word crazy in this podcast more than we have said in any other episode to date, which I think <laughs> is also a victory on our part. <laughs> but we're going to say it a few times more, right? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Vincent, did they, they warn you about our gimmick here, the craziest thing we saw in markets this week? Yeah, I, I've listened to you before. I, I know your tricks. You know, you know all the tricks. All right. We'll start with you. We'll give you the honor of uh, of being the craziest. Uh, I also know that it will not be as good as as you or Sarah. So. <laughs> we'll see it's about right. that. I have it's high right. hopes for you. It's good to come in with the right expectations. That's good. That's good. <laughs> no, so I, I, I just I'm gonna go with Peloton, uh, and, and there are many ways you can you can go at it, right? I mean, you can go either. It's, it's crazy that it's gone up so much. It's crazy that they have so much revenue. It's crazy that despite having so much revenue and selling bikes for $2,000 a pop, they still lose money, which is like <laughs> blowing my mind. Uh, but the, the, the angle I want to take is uh, on their latest uh, earnings call, they mentioned that half of their new subscribers this quarter were people with earning less than $100,000. So these are effectively the people who are getting the checks from the government. Uh, and if you add two of these checks, uh, I think it's 1,200, you just have the right amount to buy a Peloton bike. Uh, so you're a couple. And, and so what that means from a macroeconomic perspective is that the federal government, the IRS, has effectively financed the purchase of Peloton bikes across America and gives us a whole <laughs> new perspective on on what a depression means. I do think we're going through a depression, but we'll be biking our way through this depression. <laughs> on, on so really back. what these stimulus checks are being used for is to gamble, one, in the stock market, and to two, buy Peloton bikes. It's, the, uh, it's like the troubled asset relief program back in the financial crisis. Peloton was the troubled asset there, and uh, they've bailed them out. I like <laughs> it. I like that one. I, 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 I think you're onto something there. It is you're right. It's roughly the the purchase price of a Peloton in a for a couple. That's that, I think I think you're onto something there. Now your turn, guys. Let's <laughs> we'll save Sarah's for last because she hyped it up a little bit. Um, so I'll give you mine. Uh, you know, this weekend was the Berkshire Hathaway uh, annual shareholder meeting. Uh, obviously, a huge event every year for the Buffettologists out there who want to sort of hear what uh, Warren's thinking about the state of not just his uh, company, obviously, but just the, the state of the economy and the, the markets. And boy, it was a surreal one this year. I don't know if you guys watched it at all, but he set up, um, you know, it, it was your typical sort of Zoom virtual meeting. But instead of being in his basement, he was actually in the, the Omaha arena that they always do the meeting, but it was completely empty. And it was Buffett and another executive on the stage. It was really weird. And he he sort of went into this long monologue about the Great Depression, which um not really what you want to hear from Buffett uh, when you're wondering where the economy is going. But the crazy part, Sarah, is when they started taking calls from shareholders. Uh, one of the shareholders was none other than the actor Bill Murray, who uh, I guess apparently owns a, uh, a few shares in Berkshire. And I, I find it 
uh, ironic because so many people have talked about this lockdown being sort of like Groundhog Day, <laughs> the same thing over and over again. So here's here's Bill Murray, and I, I'll just read you his his question for Warren Buffett, uh, courtesy of the New York Post reporting on it. He said the pandemic will graduate a new class of war veterans, healthcare, food supply deliveries, community services. So many owe so much to so few. How might this great country take our turn and care for them all? And Buffett was pretty honest about it. He said, we won't be able to pay, actually. <laughs> it's like the people that landed at Normandy. <laughs> They're contributing a whole lot more than some of the people that came out of the right room, womb or got lucky in things or know how to arbitrage bonds or whatever it may be. In a large part, I'm one of those guys. So pretty honest uh, answer from Buffett. But Vincent, it kind of gets to the whole point about this generational and wealth inequality divide. I mean, it, um, it, it's amazing to think, uh, you know, how things could potentially be changed for the better at the other end of this, I guess, is, is if you're looking for sort of the silver lining in this cloud, maybe that's it. Right. And uh, no, I, I funny, I, I watched that thing. And as, as I was watching this really dull PowerPoint in this empty room, I had a it was almost like a, a, a eulogy for an American era that was gone. You know, there was something very, very depressing, especially comparing to like other summits when it was like the, the folksy tradition and, you know, buy, I buy yeah. America today. Like it, playing it, the ukulele. And <laughs> yes, yes. All these folksy stuff that Buffett does, it, it just, it was not there. Uh, and and I, 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 I thought the exact same thing. Now, I, I as far as the silver lining, I, I, I think we don't see it now, uh, but you know now we see the decay of of what what's passed. We don't see what's birthing, what's being born again. But it usually is. I mean, the, the quote, you know, it's always darkest before the dawn. Like it is in moment of national crisis that you actually, uh, uh, you know, fix thing and, and 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 reshuffle the social order in, in a new way. You know, it's at the death, death of the Great Depression that you got the New Deal and eventually Social Security. Or if I think about France, the you know the social program of the Resistance. Like France was occupied by Germany, it was a complete disaster. And yet in 1942, these people got got around the table and and set up the stage for. You you know what would be the the prosperity of, of thirty years of of, of of recovery after that. So, I think eventually that will come, and that's something I meant to say about the generational warfare stuff. I mean, it's it's fun to do like okay, boomer versus Gen Z, millennial, whatever. But at the end of the day, and I think that's that's the reason why it gets solved. It's, it's son versus fathers, daughters versus mothers. I mean, uh, there is there are the bonds of love and, and and mutual need that ensures that these conflicts eventually get solved. And I believe this is a story that has been repeated through history and eventually every generation finds a way to fix the system. All right, Sarah, you hyped it up. What do you have for us? Well, well, first, you guys made me think of one uh, that I actually didn't bring. So I'll, I'll keep that second. But one is speaking of the generational divide in Warren Buffett, something that was really a little bit crazy this past week. I mean, Warren Buffett talks at length about how he sold all his airline shares. Then all of a sudden this week, if you look, there's an ETF that tracks airlines, booms in popularity on Robinhood. There's massive flows uh, into the fund. Uh, a colleague on my team, they obviously didn't end up running it, but they were floating a joke headline saying millennials think they're smarter than Warren Buffett um, because Warren Buffett said sell airlines. And all of a sudden you've got all your Robinhood traders flying uh, over to this Jets ETF. Um, oh, so I would have ran, I, I ran that headline. 
Yeah, I yeah. wish we could have. <laughs> yeah, Bloomberg, you guys got to stop with putting millennial ruin this in the title, okay? Vincent, it gets red. <laughs> okay, but uh, my, my actual thing that I came with, and it, I wasn't so much hyping it up. I truly just want input from listeners on how they think this is pronounced. Obviously, there's been a lot going on uh, with Elon Musk lately and with Tesla, but his son was born this past week, and I cannot for the life of me figure out how to pronounce his son's name. Um, it's X, the symbol with the A and the E combined, A-12 Musk. So if anyone listening thinks that they know how to correctly pronounce the name, I would love for you to call in and pronounce it for us Didn't she have so a that tweet we have a better that? idea. Like, uh, there wasn't there a tweet that explained the meaning of the, the, There was no audio on that? The mother, she, yeah, she, she tweeted out the meaning of, of the name. Um, she tried to explain it. She did. <laughs> so, so he shows up, he's like, hi, I'm Elon. This is my wife Grimes or girlfriend Grimes and, and my son, a, what is it? A seven, a, a, a 12. And my son, R2 D2 is here <laughs> to, uh, um, I don't know. I'm just so curious how people think it's pronounced. So, uh, so call the hotline. Call that hotline. I, I don't have the number handy, but... Uh, I do. But it's uh, 646. For my, my point on, on growth and hassle formation and, and generation, I, regardless of how stupid the name is, I on Elon Musk for having babies. I think at the end of the day, you need more babies to solve all of that. And, you know, call them whatever we want. Just keep making them. <laughs> all, right, all right. Well, so I do have... Give you us know. your bonus crazy thing. That was pretty good. That, that Elon, the uh, Elon baby's pretty good. Uh, but what's your bonus uh, one? That was my. That was it. And then the oh. buying jets was before. Oh, right, I do right, have right, one right, more okay. if you want to hear it. But you got what third? Yeah, hit us. Sure. Why not? Why not? Uh, Carnival, the cruise line, announced that they will allow. Well, not they will allow, but they are now offering a fee, essentially a baseline fee, to take a cruise on August first when they're going to start sailing again at twenty eight dollars which is extremely yeah. cheap, but I think now we have negative Fed funds rates, negative oil prices. I think we might as well just have negative cruise lines <laughs> negative as well. Cruise, so. cruise lines. <laughs> a another subsidy to Boomer, by the way, because who's, who's going to enjoy these $28 cruises, you know? <laughs> I think you'd have to pay me <laughs> for me to get on a cruise ship right now. And hey, I'm right at the port too. I could drive over there in five minutes. <laughs> Maybe it's like uh, $28 for the cruise uh, per night and then $100 for every Lysol wipe you want to buy from the, uh, <laughs> that's from the, the, catch. the ship that's store. The catch. That's that's how they mark it up. Well, that's pretty good. Well, um, you millennials really ruined this podcast, I got to say. That's that's our goal in life. <laughs> <laughs> One more thing. As would say all the headlines. Another notch in your belt. Yeah. You ruined everything. <laughs> hey, I like the millennials. I'm a big fan of the millennials. Well, you, you said earlier that you, you kind of want to be a millennial yourself. I'm a, I'm no, by the way, a millennial, a millennial right now is, is, is 40. I mean, at least some millennial like me are getting close to 40 and they have kids that they bring to school. I mean, it, it would be great if, if news uh, people who write news headlines realize that, you know, what they think of as a millennial is actually, you know, 20 years younger than what they actually are. I don't like the Gen Z thing, though, because that's it. Gen Z, we're done. I mean, we should have thought this through be before we started naming it's, generations. I think it's, it's the next one's Alpha or something like that. You restart. Oh. Oh, that's Maybe that's where Elon's thinking with his kid's name. Maybe, maybe. Uh, and just as a reminder, you can give us a call at our podcast hotline. It is 646-324-3490. So now that you have the number, 
We should also say, of course, Vincent Delaware, thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you so much. What Goes Up will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at, at Sarah Ponsec. Mike is at Reganonymous. Our guest, Vincent Deluard, is at Vincent Deluard. And you can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Topher Forges. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. The Bloomberg Sustainable Business Summit returns to London on April 25th for a solution-driven look at the sustainable business and finance landscape, looking at the latest trends in ESG regulations, supply chain innovation and transition finance. Speakers include leaders from CDP, Emirates Environment Group, TNFD, Ctrace, COA and more. Summit advisors include City and Schneider Electric. Visit BloombergLive.com slash SBS 2024 to learn more.